Good morning, church. Everybody good this morning? All right, 10 of us are good. I will hopefully get to the rest of us later. Um, my name is Michael Page. I'm the lead pastor at uh, Connection Church Savannah. Uh, and I just want to take a moment just to thank uh, you guys for uh, just all that you do, all that you are as a church. Um, your pastor is um, very near and dear to me and to my family. Uh, we grew up in Connection. Uh, our heart has been that, you know, we would take, uh, as we planted a church in Savannah, that we would take the same culture that, that was, was started here in Statesboro to that city. And we've seen God do so many things. And it's because of what you guys are doing here what you guys are doing in unison with the network that many people are being saved, being sent, and being baptized, and we're seeing the Lord do some amazing things. And so uh, your pastor has been there for me and my wife in some of our, our darkest days uh, and walked with us through some pretty incredible things, and God is just doing so many awesome things in the life of this church. I'm excited uh, to be here today because that's kind of like a homecoming, right? Um, the only thing missing is like a potluck afterwards, right? It's kind of like a, for us, it's like a, a homecoming, coming to coming back home and, and uh, being with family. And so I just wanted to get, start off with that. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. We'll be in verses 36 to 50 today. We're going to be looking at um, a passage uh, that's very special to me. Um, and we're going to be talking about today for, about something called um, authentic discipleship. Um, for, for quite some time at our church in Savannah, what's been happening, the Lord has been leading us to this topic of authentic discipleship. And so when you think about the word authentic, like what comes to mind? What do you think about? What does it mean to be authentic, especially in a culture that you live in, that you're immersed in, um, where it's normal to be inauthentic, right? It's normal to be inauthentic in the culture that we live in. It's normal to be fake. It's normal to put up a fake persona of who you may be. On Facebook, you are, you are the best thing since sliced bread, but in real life, you, you might have some issues, right? That's all of us. It's okay. Me too. Um, listen, let's get personal. Let's, let's, let's kind of start a little illustration here. Let's get personal. Um, how many of us know, and I'm a little interactive, so if you're not this is going to be a super short sermon if we're not talking back and forth and having a little conversation. So how many of you guys know that it's not okay to buy some things generic? Right? Okay. Uh, like syrup, right? My wife, when we were newlyweds, she brought home some, she brought home some maple syrup that was, that, that was Kroger brand. I was like, woman, listen, there's one kind of syrup in this world and it's log cabin. Okay. Don't ever bring back anything else besides log cabin. Just, uh, we didn't talk. It was just, it was a joke. Um, ketchup's the same way. Barbecue sauce, you don't buy the grocery store. You find somebody making it, right? Okay, you don't, okay there's a lot of things like that. You, I, there's a lot of women in here that may have purses that may look real but are inauthentic. You may have watches, those types of things. We are, we're having these, these things that we, 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 try to, we try to portray as authentic, but they're inauthentic. So these are funny, but in, in this, this is, this, this, what we do in, in real life is this is what we do in our lives, in our, in, in our culture. We settle for an inauthentic version of things um, of something that we like to make us appear better than we may be, right? I do. I have. Uh, Samuel Johnson, a, 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 an English poet, once said, almost every man wastes part of his life in attempts to display qualities of himself that he doesn't possess. And, I, and, I, and here's the frustrating part for me as a pastor. We've carried this over into the church, right? We've carried the same culture into the church. We check certain boxes to make us look super spiritual or appear spiritual. We skip the work sometimes of self-denial and surrender, right? And this is the type of Christianity that creates church hurt. It's the type of Christianity that creates ineffective or dying churches. And I think what we forget sometimes is we have an enemy. 
This morning, if you don't know that and you're trying to follow Jesus, I just want to let you know that you have an enemy trying to stop you from following Jesus and stop you from being authentic in your faith, right? We forget sometimes that we have an enemy trying to stop us from living on mission. He's tempting us to worship ourselves instead of God, to, to think about self before God. The people around the world that John just referred to has an enemy trying, who has no access to the gospel, have an enemy trying to stop the gospel from getting to places where it's not because that enemy wants the glory that only God deserves. And this morning, when I look at my Bible and, and how we're called to live as foreigners in this world, I realize, church, that if we're not careful, we can be lulled to sleep by the kingdom of this world and start to love this love this world more than we love the kingdom of God. We can start loving the things of this world more than we love God. And because what happens is we get drunk on the comforts of this world. We get drunk on the comforts of the things that the enemy tries to tempt us with. And we get tricked into a way of living where we wake up in the morning and we only thinking about what we're going to eat that night or do that day or watch that night or what vacation we're going on next month and how comfortable we are in our nice homes and we lose that wartime mentality that we're in a battle, a war against a very real enemy to see God's glory reach the ends of the earth. And Jesus has come on a rescue mission with the gospel. And that the moment that we're saved, we become part of that rescue team with a role to play. Are you with me? This morning, I pray that, that we, would, we would kind of be shaken awake a little bit as we look into some of this scripture. Because what happens is we get tricked into taking our eyes off the glory and the goodness of God. And we take our eyes off the fact that it's the, it's the master that has entrusted us with everything that we think we own and control. And we think the things we have are ours and we use them to make ourselves comfortable instead of leveraging them for the kingdom. And this is where the topic of authentic discipleship comes in. What does it look like? to be an authentic disciple of Jesus? What does it look like to be an authentic disciple of Jesus? We did this series in Savannah a few weeks back called Authentic. Where we talked through the marks of an authentic disciple. What does that mean? What, what identifies us as a disciple? And the mark that I wanna focus in on today with you guys is the mark of a worshiper. A true disciple of Christ is a worshiper of God and God alone. And you're like, well, that's kind of elementary, Michael. Well, yeah, I mean, it is, but it's something we kind of miss a lot of times because what we believe is, Authentic disciple is a true worshiper of God and God alone. And the only way we'll be healthy in an effective church, guys, is to be a true worshiper of Jesus. John Piper once said that true worship is a, a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. And so I just want to pray as we jump into this scripture that we would focus on that this morning. Let's do a little evaluation. Do I love God more than all the other things in my life? My possessions, my family, my job, my, my income, all the things of this world. And do I love God more than all of those things? Does he get first and best, first priority in my life? So let's pray. Uh, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, God, for allowing the church to gather. Lord, we know there's something special when your people, God, who are called by your name, gather together and worship you, Father. God, I pray for the person in this room who's far from you, God, who may be a Christian, who may be saved, God, but has walked away, Father. I pray that you would draw them near. I pray for the person in this room that is steeped in religion, God, or, or, in, or just is, is worshiping doctrine over you, Father. I pray that you would just draw them into you this morning, Father, for a, to see how much you truly love them, Father, and how big you really are. God, I pray this morning for the person that's lost, God, that you would draw them near, God, that you would reveal yourself to them. In Jesus' name, God, save them this morning. 
God, I pray that your words would be clear. I pray that nothing comes out of my mouth except what you want, God, and I pray that you would hide me behind your word, God, because you're good, and I pray, God, that you would increase and that we would decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at verse 36. We're going to read straight through, and then we're going to talk some, and then we're going to revisit it, and then we're going to talk some more, and then we're going to end the service. How about that? Is that good? Just give you a schedule. Okay, cool. So verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. Say, so kind of give you some context. Jesus had basically just told these people, right, and the Pharisees, that they're just a bunch of unresponsive people. Like, here's the gospel. This is what you claim to believe. This is the fulfillment of everything you say you believe in the Old Testament. All these things, this is the fulfillment. And they're not responding to anything. And so, and so then, then this Pharisee comes up and says, You know what, let's just calm down. Come to my house. Let's talk about this in private. It's basically what's happening, okay? And so it says, verse 37, And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She bought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, that's an important part. He said to himself, right? He didn't say this out loud. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus replied to his thought, <laughs> scary, replied to his thought, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a creditor had two debtors who owed 500 denarii. Denarii is about one day's wages. So he had 500 days wages. That's a lot of money for, for, for a lot of us. And the other had 50. Some, they cannot, since they cannot pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of these will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. By turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears was, has washed my feet and wiped with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So I'm going to do a little experiment. For some of you, this may be dangerous because you may be sleepy, but I just want you to close your eyes and kind of clear your mind for a second. And I know I'm going to give you a second because I know some of you got a lot going on there in the old noggin. So I want to give you a little time. So just close your eyes for a second. I want to, I want to, I want to do an experiment for you. It's just for you. Because what picture comes to mind when you hear the name of God is important. And here are a few that we find in Scripture. It's Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth. El Shaddai, God Almighty who blesses. Adonai, the Lord, the Master. Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees my needs and meets them. Jehovah Rapha, God my healer. Jehovah Mikadesh, God who sanctifies me. Jehovah Nisi, God of my victory. Jehovah Shalom, God of my peace that surpasses understanding. Jehovah Tzikinu, you are my righteousness. Jehovah Rohi, you are my shepherd. Jehovah Shema, God who is always with me. El Elyon, the most high God. So the thought that comes to mind when we think about God is, is critical because it controls every other facet of our lives. It moves us. You can open your eyes if you're awake still. Um, but it's what moves us. I was reminded of a, of a scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. 
That reminded me of a story. It says this, this, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up and see who created this, these, the stars. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. God numbers and names the stars. And I was thinking about an opportunity that I had back in college that I went to the Amazon for a mission trip and we were on this river and this boat that I probably, looking back, probably shouldn't have been on. But we looked up and it was, mid, it was about midnight and we looked up, there was no moon in the sky, but you could see across the river, you can see across to the woods. And the only thing that was given light were the stars. There were so many stars in the sky. You can see the Milky Way galaxy. And I was just amazed at the glory of God in that moment. There was no light pollution to be seen. Just seeing God's creation overlooking us. And looking at this verse, I was reminded of that. And so what I see in Scripture, as I look at the word for worship, the word for worship goes back to an Anglo-Saxon word meaning worth. Literally, worship means reverence that is paid towards worth. So kind of a, a not-so-educated version that I would give you is, is worship is the overflow of a right view with God. Worship is an overflow of the right view with God. But what do we have? We have an enemy. We have an enemy that deceives us over and over and over again to minimize God and to exalt self. Does anybody else deal with that? Exalting self over God, choosing self over God, having, allowing God to control you, some parts of your lives, but, but kind of hedging off the parts that you find attractive and the things that you want, right? We all do that as humans. And I want us to kind of start out on common ground this morning and agree that we all struggle with this, that we have a view of God that is too small, right? We all do. We all have a few of God that's too small that I pray that as God begins to reveal this to us that he would let that grow. We forget these things sometimes because what happens is the church comes together and we chase sings beautiful songs and Brandon preaches incredible sermons and we talk about God and his attributes all the while forgetting that if we were to come into the presence of God physically into his presence, we would say nothing. In the Bible, we forget that when people experience God's presence, they either died or they fell on their face in worship, in speechless worship, in awe and wonder of who he is. Guys, I'll even go as far to say that every spiritual problem that you have in your life, things like doubt, apathy, unhappiness, insecurity, and most of all, sin, is all the result from a view of God that's too small. Seeing him for who he is. And let's be real, man. Like, as Americans, we prefer a small God, right? I'm, 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 I'm talking about myself. We, preserve, we prefer a small God that we can manage and we can predict and we can control, right? We, because that kind of God feels safe to us. He doesn't confuse us. He doesn't contradict us. He doesn't make us mad or sad. That kind of God does pretty much whatever we want, which makes him not the God that we, the Bible claims he is, right? It's not the God of the Bible when we do that. And it's easy to follow a God that we control. It's easy to follow a God that we don't take seriously or whose commands we neglect out of, out of convenience. We love that God because it's easy to follow him because in reality, we're God. And the God of the Bible we claim we worship is actually just an advisor in our lives and not somebody we worship as Lord. It's easy to follow him. And don't get me wrong, guys. This, this may be some people's God, but it's a little g God. But this isn't the God of the Bible. It's a false God that man creates, adding things that work and taking out things that are hard. It's kind of like a buffet-style Jesus, right? Anybody like buffets in here? You know I do, right? Come on, man. Listen, 
I know we got a lot. Of, I'm used to preaching like the first four rows. Okay, I can't. Can I, it's kind of hard to focus. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. I like buffets. You kind of you kind of get what you want. You get a pizza. You know, you get the mac and cheese. You kind of leave the beans aside. You can get some of the sushi if you're at the right place. You do all the things. I don't eat sushi buffet. That's weird. Don't do that. But listen, you get what you want. You leave what you don't want. That's what we do with Christ sometimes. I, I get what I want. I, I take his, his love and forgiveness and I, I try to attain to his holiness. But when it comes to him directing my life and he tries to change my plans or move me to a place I'm not comfortable with or cause me to the nations, I don't know about that. Let's, let's just put that on. Let's just put a pin in that, God. Let's just put a pin there and then we'll, we'll come back to that in a few years whenever I'm more mature in my faith, right? No, that's not what God, the God of the Bible is like. But in the end, this is idolatry and self-worship. And that is why people come into the church and act bored in worship. That is why people come to church and get uncomfortable when people raise their hands or fall on their knees or fall on their face in worship. So my question is, what is the object of your worship and my worship? I'm not talking about songs. I'm not talking about songs, but our worship, our heart condition before God. What consumes our hearts, our minds, our bank accounts, and our time? I'm stepping on toes with those words, right? What are we giving our first and our best of our time, our treasure, our talents to? A.W. Tozer said it really good. He said, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by the worship of God is not ready for heaven. When people in the Bible came before the presence of God, they worshiped with their faces on the ground in reverence, in awe, and wonder. Numbers 20, verse 6, Moses and Aaron fell on their face at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In Genesis 17, 3, Abraham fell on his face as God was speaking to him. In 1 Kings 18, 39, on Mount Carmel, the, probably my favorite story in Scripture, the, the fire of the Lord fell down, as Elijah called it, the, and the prophets of Baal, and Elijah, and all the believers in God, and all the pagans fell on their face and says, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Right? And I can almost hear you guys thinking this. Well, that's the Old Testament, Michael. Well, let's go to the New Testament, Matthew 17, 6. When the disciples heard God's voice after Jesus was baptized, guess what? They fell on their faces in worship. In Luke 5, 12, when the lepers saw Jesus, what did they do? They fell on their face in worship saying, if you will, we believe that you can heal us. And then finally in Revelation chapter 1, when John encountered the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus, guess what? His face hits the ground in honor and worship. And this is what I know, and this is what I've lived, and I understand this, is it's hard to worship and serve a God that we don't revere. It's hard to serve and worship a God that we don't revere. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And what this verse means is that without a trembling awe before the majesty of God, we'll never truly know God, trust God, or walk with God. We'll never get it. And this isn't the goal. I mean, isn't this the goal of a disciple though, right? To know God and to be known by God? That's the goal. And I'll tell you right now that if this is the only place that you experience God in worship or take in the word of God, you haven't begun to see him for who he is. Guys, the God of the Bible is the opposite of small. It's the opposite. He's the opposite of manageable. He's not just big. He's bigger than big, right? He, he's bigger than all the words that we can say big with. He, he, he defies our abilities to describe him with man's vocabulary. 
His creation should blow our minds. I love, we're going to talk about this in a second, um, but I love talking about creation. I was doing a, a sermon a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the stars. The, the closest star to, that we see in the sky to, to our, our planet is 95 billion miles away. Look it up. It's amazing. What? Like, that blows my mind. And that's my God that created this with his, with his words. I'll show you a better picture. Look, can we throw up the picture that's not that? That's weird. Um, there we go. This is where you live at, okay? This is the Milky Way galaxy. Um, this is where you live. I'm not really sure where at is that you're living there. But this is our galaxy. This is where you, this is your home. And do you know how big this is, right? I, I grew up seeing this. How many of you guys have done like a, 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 a model of the galaxy when you were in school? Anybody do that? One of us? Okay, great. All right, cool. Bad example. Um, so let me try to keep up with this, okay? Because this is amazing. As I was looking at this, it looks small and cute and beautiful, all the stars and the lights. But I want to give you some ideas of what we're looking at here. Um, anybody know what a light year is, right? A light year is the distance that light travels in one year. Does anybody, I, I'm not, there's, we're too big, can't I? It's six trillion miles. Light travels six trillion miles in a year. You, you can't count it would take you 31,710 years to count to one trillion. My, uh, listen, you got to say, wow, or that's crazy, or just at least be like, man, raise your eyebrows. That's some interesting stuff, bro. That's amazing. It would take you 190,260 years to count to six trillion. Think about that for a second. Just to count to that. Our Milky Way galaxy is 105,700 light years across. So from there to there, 105,700 light years across. That's six quintillion miles. That's six with 18 zeros behind it. Right? Light travels through our universe at 186,000 miles per second. Can you imagine going that fast? They talk about G-forces. Your face would be on the back of your head, right? It's crazy. Think about that for a second. Like Going 186,000 miles per second for a whole year. Can you imagine how far you would go? Some of you people are good at math. You can figure that out. I didn't do that math, okay? Too big for me. But this is just our galaxy, man. If we're trying to go from one end to the other, can you imagine how long it would take you to do it? Going 186 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years going the speed of light to go across that galaxy. I'm like, What? God is big, and we're small. We're nobody to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped and praised and honored and adored. Think about that. That is 1,300 lifetimes to go through that, and that's just our galaxy. God's like, well, you know what? There's more. There's 350 billion galaxies in our universe. 350 billion galaxies in our universe that God just put there because he's glorious and awesome. That's awesome. And God says this. And Psalms 113, keep that, just look at that, man. That's just our galaxy. Psalms 113, it says, he has set his glory above the heavens. And so what God is saying, he says, if you're fascinated by this, if you're fascinated by the beauty of my creation, you should see me. You should see what I've, who I am and all of my glory. How, if, if that's the case, how is pride even possible, right? How, 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 how can we look at ourselves and say, you know, I'm pretty awesome. I got it together. Got a job, got some kids, got some money. My life's in order. You know, uh, people like me for the most part. Right? How, can we, how can we not be humbled by the, by the fact that the Lord of all creation has chosen us through the gospel? 
And guys, listen, isn't it comforting to know that you worship a God that you can't exaggerate? Right? It's comforting to know that you worship a God that you cannot exaggerate. Man, that's beautiful. And this is what we need to get out of the way as level one Christianity. In view of all of this, worship is more than a song. Worship is more than a song. Worship is giving God our all because he is worth it. Worship is giving God everything, using the money you make generously towards the mission of God. Worship is serving your neighbor, serving the body of Christ. God doesn't just judge our words. He judges our lives more than our words. So if we're worshiping with our lips but not our lives, our worship turns the stomach of God. You can look at Isaiah chapter 1. If we're coming to church and saying, God, you're great, we love you. If you're going and you're, you're reading your Bible and you're praying, you're part of a connect group, you're all these things, but your life doesn't match your words. It says it's, the Bible says it turns God's stomach. It makes him sick. Because worship is a direction of your soul. It's a direction that your soul is turned. And don't be deceived, guys. We don't, we don't bring anything to God in worship that he doesn't already have. Right? We don't bring, the only thing that we bring before God in worship is our need for Him. Right? That's, that's what we do. The, to arrive at a church gathering or a connect group or a discipleship time and declare, God, we are here for you in the sense that you believe there's something that you can give to God that He doesn't already have is an insult to the very core of who God is. God doesn't need us, He's chosen us, He's given us entryway into His presence through Jesus. Our worship doesn't meet a need in God, it meets a need in us. It reminds me, it reminds us of our immediate and urgent need for the gospel to cover us because when I come before a God who made that, I need some help, right? I, I'm, I need some help, I'm not sure about you, but I need some help because I don't have it together. The sin in my life is great. Coming before a holy God, I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I need the Lord, I need Jesus to, to cover me. Let's look at verse 36 to 47 again in Luke that we just read. 36 to 47 again. It says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman who was in town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. This was about a year's wages worth of perfume. It's very expensive. And stood behind him at his feet, weeping. This, this shows repentance. Reap, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is. That's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I, have, I want to ask you a question. He said, say it, Peter. Say it, teacher. Sorry. A, a, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he generously forgave them both. So which of them would love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, kissed, she, she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. She gave me no kiss. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And as I read this story, guys, I can't help but to notice the two main characters in this story. And I can't help but to ask myself, which character am I? Which character am I? Who do I resemble the most in this story? And let's be really honest. Let's do some self-evaluation with this. Are you the Pharisee? Am I the Pharisee? The Pharisee sitting at the table, 
talking with Jesus, discussing things. I don't know what they were talking about. Maybe they were saying, that was a great miracle you did that there at the, at the pool. Man, that was a great thing. Or trying to discuss some deep theological things that, that Jesus could maybe clear up. They were trying to test him maybe. I don't know. And the Pharisee took Jesus for granted. But the sinful woman who just says, Jesus, Lord, you're my Lord, and I just want to sit at your feet and worship you because without you I'm lost and I have nothing to offer except my sin. And look at verse 37 and 38 again. And the woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, everything she had, and stood behind him at his feet, didn't say a word, weeping and washing his feet with tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. She treasured Jesus. And she'd heard that Jesus was there. She was aware of her sin and what a great need that she had. And she couldn't meet on her own. So she came and she brought everything with her. She came humbly at his feet. She honored him with a gift that, that equated to a year's of wages. And she treasured the Lord. She came with everything she had to worship God. And think about how much courage it took to step into a Pharisee's house as a sinner how much courage it took for her to walk into that home. And guys, sometimes I feel like as a big C church in America, we struggle because I feel like we're too cool or too reserved. We try to put up this inauthentic image of who we are and we don't wanna show weakness before our brothers and sisters. We care too much about what people may think about us and not enough about how God sees us. And I wonder if Jesus were to walk in this room today when we were gathered, who would be the ones that wouldn't care about anything except him being here? Who wouldn't care about their image or what everybody else thinks or aren't self-conscious but more God-conscious? They, they turn, they run to him and just bow at his feet and kiss his feet. And I just wonder who would do that and who would sit back and say, look at him. How do we even know that's the real Jesus? Look at that person. Did you see how much she gave? Did you see him on his knees making a fool of himself? If that's the camp we're in, guys, we are a Pharisee. This woman did what the most religious men in Israel failed to do. The most religious. Jesus pointed out later that the host, in contrast, had done none of the things that this woman was doing. Didn't even give water for his feet, which was a custom in that time. But the woman was constantly anointing his feet. Listen, the Pharisee had God in the flesh in his house. Think about that. Have you ever, have you ever hosted Jesus at your house? God in the flesh in his house and he overlooked him. Have you ever overlooked God in your attempts to have your best life now and forgot to worship him like he deserves? Have we ever overlooked him in that? Have we become numb to him? Do you realize, do you recognize his present when it's right here before you. Listen, we'll always be a church connection that pushes you and each other to worship Jesus first. And I'm reminded of a story in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel where David came back into the city after God had delivered them, had delivered Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it says he was dancing, right? He was dancing, but he was doing more than dancing. He was a little naked, right? He was dancing out in the streets. In front of the Ark of the Covenant, just, just dance, going, going to town because God had delivered Israel. And when he got home, his, his wife and, 
and, and was making fun of him and, he, he, and how, how he embarrassed himself. You're, you're the king and you embarrassed yourself in front of all of Israel. What did he say? Like in South Georgian terms, I think he probably said, woman, I'll become even more undignified than this. You ain't seen nothing yet before my God. So really fast as we close this time together, there's three really, really fast things I want to share with you. If you're a note taker, write these down. The first thing is true worship begins when we understand the weight of our sin and the cost of our salvation. True worship begins when we understand the weight of our sin. We truly understand that. And we truly understand the cost at which the God of all creation, the heavens and the earth, the Milky Way galaxy, the 350 billion other galaxies who created that has stooped down, sent his son to die for us so that we could live. Do you understand what it means to hold back from Jesus the things that he died to purchase? Do we understand that this morning? Because here's a fact. There's nothing that you uncover that Jesus will not cover with his grace. There's nothing that you uncover before God, your worst sin, that you uncover before God in, in repentance that he will not cover with his grace. And there's nothing that you keep from Jesus that he won't one day uncover. And so when we see God, what God's done through Jesus, when we see what it cost him to set you free, you worship. And I, I think the, the reason why a lot of people don't worship with their life or with their song is because they haven't truly seen Jesus. They haven't truly understood who Christ was. They may be riding on the coattails of someone else, their parents' faith, their pastor's faith, and never truly had a personal faith with Jesus. Worship begins when you come before Jesus with transparency and express your need for him. Lord, I need you. And an unsurrendered heart cannot experience true worship. The second thing, true worship, we said this before, true worship is an overflow of a right view with God. True worship is an overflow of the right view of God. And I just want to kind of give you a disclaimer. I don't necessarily think we'll have a perfect view of God until we see God, right? When we see God for who he is, though, in this moment in life, in our humanity, and not who we want him to be as the buffet-style Jesus, we experience awe and wonder, right? We experience the awe and wonder that God deserves. The only response is real, authentic worship. And as we grow as authentic disciples, surrendering to God the things that we don't want to surrender sometimes, as we follow him and being transformed by him and, and join him on mission, that puts us on a collision course with Jesus, with God. You show me a person that's bored with worship, and I'll show you a person that doesn't truly know God. The last thing, true worship is treasuring God above all things. True worship is treasuring God above all things in your life. Does Jesus hold that place in your heart this morning? Is that you? Does, does, what is your life? I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell me what's what. I'm not asking you to tell me that Jesus holds the first place in your life. I'm asking you to show me with your life. What does your life say? Does, does he get the first and the best of everything? Does, does the way you spend your time, treasure, and talent scream that Jesus is Lord? And if you're a disciple who isn't experiencing true worship in your life or isn't living out true worship in your life, the question that you're probably asking is, well, what do I do? What do I do? And I think there's one thing that cover, uncovers, excuse me, that covers all those things is we tear down the idols in your heart. You tear down the idols in your heart. The heart of every person in this room is an idol factory that constantly pushes us to put other things before God right? Mine, mine is. 
If I'm not constantly looking after my heart, I'm going to put something before God, whether it's my wife, my children, my role as a pastor, my church, my friends, my income, my security, all has the potential to be a God in my life, an idol in my life. The main thing that we try to put before God, though, is what? Self. We try to put self before God so many times. We have our own little, our own little tinsel crowns that we put on ourselves as, as God's. And the reason we don't give or serve or go as we should is because we're so consumed with our own self-interest and the goals that we put before God. And this is the opposite of worship, man. This, and so if you don't believe me, answer this question just rhetorically. Do you spend more time planning for retirement or vacation or things that for self more than you think about making disciples of Jesus? Where, your, where do your thoughts go? One of my favorite theologians, pastors is Charles Spurgeon. He says one thing. He says that nothing teaches us about the preciousness of our creator as much as when we learn the emptiness and the worthlessness of everything else. Martin Luther also says that whatever your heart clings to and confides in that is your God, your functional savior. And so whenever the Israelites were going into the promised land, whenever God was giving them their chosen place of worship, God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 12, he says, be careful to follow these statutes and ordinances in the land that the Lord your God, your fathers has given you to possess all the days of your life. Verse two, destroy completely all the places where the nations that are you are driving out worship their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. Tear down their altars, smash the sacred pillars, burn their asherah poles, cut down the carved images of their gods, and wipe out their names from every place. When we come before God as our Savior and as our Lord, it's easy to love the Savior God, right? Because he saves us and sets us apart. And we, we love the one that saves us from our sins. But when it comes to the Lord God, we balk sometimes as Americans because we like to be in control. This morning as Christ followers, God is calling us to the same thing, to tear down the idols that we once worshiped before we came into the promised land of our salvation. Tear down the idols of, of our lives that we once looked to for security and comfort in our lives. Guys, we worship God because Jesus made a way for us to worship God by redeeming our lives on the cross. We could not worship God in our own ability because of our sin. Guys, without Jesus, every single one of us this morning would spend eternity separated from God without question. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. Like we love the Savior Jesus, but we balk at the Lord Jesus. Well, what, is, what has Jesus done for you this morning? I, he's done what nobody else could do. He absorbed the wrath of God for you and for me, it's finished. He stood on the cross, it's finished. There's no more work for you to do. He made a way where there was no way. He defeated sin on the cross and walked out of the grave three days later, defeating death. And what did you do and what did I do? What do we have to do with any of this? Not one single thing. This is what makes the gospel so great. This is what makes Jesus so attractive. This is what makes him worthy of our praise and our, our worship and giving him glory forever. Hear this this morning. The only thing that you and I did in the gospel, in the equation of the gospel, was we provided the sin that Jesus died for. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
While we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. And this is the one of the millions of reasons that the disciples of Jesus are worshipers of God. Because guess what? The, the angels, it says, look down, long to look into the things of the gospel. They don't care about the, the galaxies and the three, 350 billion galaxies in the, in the universe. They care about what God did on the cross through Jesus. There's something that happened in the gospel that should blow us all away. And the enemy tries to numb our hearts from being affected by its power. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God into salvation. It should blow us away. Every time we think about the God of all creation stooped down into man's life, provided a savior who died for us. And if our hearts aren't turned to him this morning in pure, unhindered worship, then there's something wrong in our hearts and we need to get it right. Maybe it's you've never understood the gospel. Maybe it's you've never come face to face with who Jesus is. This morning, I just wanna give, give you some encouragement. I don't know where you're at, but your pastor shared something yesterday on social media that says you matter, because you do. You matter so much that God sent his only son to die on a cross that was meant for you. You matter so much that he continuously gives you the, the sustaining ability to live your life through the gospel. This morning, if you've never come to your faith in Christ, if you've never put your heart into the hands of Christ, you may say, hey, I've been a Christian since I was born because, but since I was born because I grew up down the street at the Methodist, Baptist, or Pentecostal church. And I've been there my whole life. I was there on seventh day. I was born and I've been there my whole life. That doesn't save you. Well, I, I pray and I read the Bible and I attend Connect Group and I was baptized. That doesn't save you. There's gonna be a lot of people that go to hell that are wet. Do you know Jesus this morning? The author and the perfecter of your faith, the one who said that, that, that he would go to the cross to die for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. We call that the great exchange. Isn't that great? This morning, if you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life, I'm not talking about being a fan of Jesus where you love Jesus, he, you love all his teachings. I'm talking about realizing that you're a sinner and in your sin, you would not be in the presence of God, that you need a savior to save you from your sins and that you put your faith in Christ in that moment. If that's you this morning, if you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. I wanna want ask you to be bold. Sometimes we say we wanna bow our heads and we wanna close our eyes, but we wanna do that this morning. We wanna be a church that celebrates someone coming to faith, right? So this morning, if that's you, if you know that today is the day that you are called to walk into the presence of God as a true worshiper, as a, as a saved son and daughter of God, you wanna put your faith in Jesus this morning. We just do something very bold, just lift your hands. That's me, that's me this morning. Is that anybody? I can't, so many people I can't see. If that's not you this morning, I pray that you would do what we talked about at the end of this sermon, that you would check your heart do you have idols in your heart that are, that are competing for time with God? If you do, I pray that you would get that right today before you leave. Talk to a prayer team member. Talk to one of your pastors. Talk to me. I'm here. I would love to pray with you. So I just want to pray for us as, as we get ready to leave. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you are. We thank you for loving us like you have. God, I pray this morning for the people in this room, God, that, have, um, that are struggling. God, that the people in this room that are that are, that are just fired up about what you're doing, God, all the different areas of our lives that we are um, just uh, in right now. God, I pray that you would just encourage us, give us life. Father, I pray for the person that may be um, struggling in their faith this morning, that, that you would just um, speak life and just reveal yourself to them. Father, I pray for the person that is, doesn't know you this morning, God, that you would 
not let them settle until they have turned their lives over to you this morning in Jesus' name. God, we thank you. We love you. We give you all the honor and praise because you are the only one that deserves the honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name.